Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, I'm Ivana Andrade. I'm a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, I'm in the studio with Kate Gordon. Kate leads the energy and climate team at Next Generation, where she helps develop policies to combat climate change and move the U.S. to a clean energy economy. For the past two years, she has also served as the executive director of the Risky Business Project, an initiative to quantify and publicize the economic risks of climate change. She has worked on economic development and social justice issues and is regarded as a leader in the national green jobs movement. She writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal as an energy expert. She blogs for the Huffington Post, and she writes a weekly update on California energy, climate, and climate news for Next Generation. Thank you, Kate, for being here. It's nice to be here, Ivana. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Looking back at 2014, what do you think are some of the most promising signs of change in the U.S. in terms of climate policy? Well, you know, we're in a, a good period, actually, in some ways, even though Congress is very gridlocked on this issue. Climate change is extremely partisan still in Congress, but that hasn't stopped a lot of positive change. So 2014, I would say, is characterized by a couple things. A lot of executive action on climate. So President Obama has passed the coal rules, of course, out of the EPA, known by most environmentalists as 111D, which is like the least descriptive name ever. But um, but essentially, those are rules to bring the carbon emissions from the electricity sector down about 30% by 2030, which is pretty significant. Um, states are now working to meet those regulations. And, and I think that is a big sea change, honestly, in the electricity sector. Um, there's also new, uh, lesser known, but more, but also important new rules for things like microwaves, other appliances. Um, so the executive branch has done a lot in this arena. But on the, on the private sector side, we've also seen just huge cost decreases in wind and solar technology in particular. And I think the U.S. invested something like two, like 500, how much did we invest last year? I can't even remember, but some some huge amount in clean energy technologies last year um, in the U.S. alone, a lot of that in solar, the cost of which has come down dramatically. So those two things, that sort of public sector administrative side and the private sector cost changes are driving movement in this area despite Congress. So part of Next Generation's mission to spread climate policy is to take examples developed in California. And I'm curious why California is a useful example as a model for other national policy changes. Yeah, California is really interesting. You know, a lot of people think of it as kind of monolithically liberal and coastal and uh, kind of way ahead on these environmental issues. I think the state is actually more complicated than that. It's a pretty diverse state. We have a lot of non-coastal areas. We have um, actually a pretty mixed um, political scene, despite our, our state leaders all being Democrats. Um, but the important thing about California from in terms of its leadership on these issues is that it's the eighth largest economy in the world. It's a massive economy. Um, it just passed Brazil, actually, which is, is huge. Brazil be, is a very major economy at this point. So, um, so we're the eighth largest economy. We have a huge market for technologies. Uh, laws passed in California, like the 
emission standards on, on cars, for instance, which passed before the U.S. standards on cars, push the rest of the country toward change. Um, if you have to sell a more efficient car into the California market, which is a huge market, particularly for cars, then you're going to change your car production standards as a result, right? Um, more recent example, California just changed the rules on um, chargers, plug-in chargers, so that every plug-in charger sold in the state has to have an internal automatic shutoff switch. And now the plug-in charger market is changing because of that. So it's a big market. We're also, it is true, very progressive on these policy issues. Um, governor Brown, in his last term as governor back in the 70s, put in place energy efficiency standards um, that were groundbreaking at the time and have made the state one of the only states with a kind of basically a flat demand curve on efficiency, on energy use. Um, and of course, we now have AB 32, which is the big cap and trade program, biggest in the world, which just brought transportation fuels under a carbon cap for the first time ever, um, any place doing that in January. So. We do have we do have very very far reaching programs, and but then we also have this huge market that kind of makes or breaks those programs. It demonstrates the ability to do these things and keep the economy strong. So you hear a lot about kind of high profile state level climate programs, climate policies. I'm curious about private investment in, mm -hmm. in clean energy. What is that like in California? It's really strong. I mean, you know, part of it is the policy environment, though. So we've had the efficiency standards for a long time, and we also had one of the first renewable energy standards, although I am I have to say the first ever renewable portfolio standard was in my home state of Wisconsin. It was only 2%, but it was the first one. Um, California's is now the biggest, I think. We're 33% by 2030, and there's a lot of momentum to push that up. Um, actually, I'm sorry, 33% by 2020. Uh, we're actually on our way to get there, and the reason for that is private investment. The the having the standard set uh, a set of conditions in the state that have allowed for a huge amount of innovation uh, in solar and wind in particular. We also have a low carbon fuel standard, which requires you know decreases in carbon emissions by 2020, 2020 from the transportation fuel side, and that's caused huge biofuels investment and technology uh, innovation in the state. So. We do tend to have a lot of kind of a meeting of the minds of the technology side of California with these these policies setting that market. I'm, I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on these conditions that lead to innovation, sure. because this is always, um, you know, a, a point of uh, or an issue in, in environmental law. Laws that generate innovation or laws that, that burden, you know, industry with too much regulation. Uh, how do you see this issue playing out in California? Yeah, it's a big issue, of course, and it's a big political issue. Um, I mean, there's two different kinds of laws, I think, that have worked to spur innovation in California in very different ways. So there's a there's a set of laws that set goals, uh, like the Renewable Portfolio Standard, like the Efficiency Standards, um, that essentially say, you know, we need to use less, we need to, we need to use less energy, we need to use more renewables. We are creating a market for you by doing that. Go fill the market, right? So that's one set of laws. Um, then there's the sort of traditional top-down command and control environmental regulation, which says if you don't do this, you will be punished, right? And we certainly have some of that as well. Um, California's obviously also been a leader on things like the California Environmental Protection Act. We have a lot of layers of environmental regulation. Interestingly, both of those things uh, work to create a market. I mean, both of those things actually spur innovation, um, but they do it in different ways. So 
one of them is sort of setting the market and allowing allowing the private sector to kind of figure out ways to come to it. And that's what a cap and trade system is really for, actually, um, as the biggest example of that. Setting a cap on carbon and allowing the private sector to figure out how to do their business below the cap and then trading permits if they, you know, if they're if they're failing, one is failing and one is winning. Um, the command and control stuff is a little more about businesses doing whatever they can up to that limit. Um, but but it is true that both have created some really significant opportunities. And again, I would say on the command and control side that the clean car standards have been probably the best example of that. Emission standards for these vehicles have significantly changed the vehicle market. And that was a command and control piece of legislation. It was very clearly stated what those levels could be. And it changed the entire market for the good. And American car companies, in some cases, are more competitive than they were before. Tesla comes out of that market, um, but so do you know? So does the Chevy Bolt. So, elaborating a little bit more on this cap and trade program, uh, that is AB thirty two, right? And so, there's there's two primary climate and clean energy policies now: AB thirty two, the cap and trade program, and Proposition thirty nine, the Clean Energy Jobs Act of twenty twelve. So. Proposition 39 closes a corporate tax loophole, and it's supposed to raise an expected $1.1 billion for clean energy infrastructure um, and clean energy projects. And I'm curious who you think is on the ground, you know, when these are implemented, who is being served by them? Do you think the resources are being used appropriately, efficiently? Is it effective? Are these being shown to be effective? Yeah, Prop 39, um, we in California had due propositions. That's what we do. Um, and uh, so that was a, a ba- on the ballot. It was passed by the people of California in 2012. Uh, and as you said, what it did was close a particular loophole. It's sort of interesting what it did because the reason people voted for it was overwhelmingly the loophole it closed, not where the money was going. Um, but what it did was close a, a tax loophole that that essentially allowed out-of-state corporations to, to, to choose a tax rate based on their um, their uh, workers within the state instead of their sales within the state. So it was essentially what what these companies would do would be to say, we don't want to be taxed on sales because our sales in California are so big. We want to be taxed on workers, so we're just going to move them all to Nevada, and then we're going to sell into California and get taxed that way. We changed that to a single sales factor, which basically they can't choose. They have to be taxed on sales. Um, and that actually raised more than, um, well, it's it's kind of questionable how much it raises. It changes every year because of the corporate tax returns. But it should raise actually almost about $2.5 billion um, over five years for these programs. And half of that money is directed, as you said, toward energy efficiency and specifically in schools. Um, public schools are the big recipients of those funds. And... That's been an interesting process. I was really involved in the implementation of Prop 39 um, at Next Generation, and there was actually a really interesting process of bringing education advocates together with energy advocates around what this should look like for the schools in California. We have a big problem in California with school facilities. There was actually a huge lawsuit, um, the Williams case, a few years ago in California, it's essentially kind of a Brown versus Board of Education case about separate and unequal facilities for different income levels of kids. And we have, California schools are falling apart in huge parts of the state. Um, they're basically sustained on local bond measures, which are the only way people can raise money for facilities. 
we have enormous numbers of portable classrooms in California. We have that kind of weather. So something like 30% of all classes in the state are held in portable classrooms. They're like trailers. And those are, have been found not only to be kind of degraded, but also they have things like asbestos. They have formaldehyde in the walls. I mean, they're really, really terrible. So we were facing, we realized when we were doing implementation that this was not just a question of, you know, can we get lead gold or whatever? It's a, it was a question of bringing facilities up to basic standards. Um, and to me, that's really important because it, it underscores how it's important to think broadly about these issues. You can't just constantly be pushing for, you know, everyone to own an electric vehicle, everyone to have a lead gold house. You have to also look at the conditions on the ground and think about what are the incremental steps that you need to get to a place where that's even feasible for people. So, so we did a lot of work on that. And, and at Next Generation, I'm proud that we were, we were involved in making sure there was a, a floor on the amount of money that the small rural schools in particular would get from the program. Um, it's done by a per pupil distribution. And that often means the small schools just don't get any money. So we helped set a floor for them and also allowed them to bundle a couple of years of funding to, to have a more significant chunk to work with. Because those are really the schools, frankly, that are, that are falling apart, is those small rural schools in northeastern California and down through the inland area. So this leads me to another big question I have for you, and, and that is your, your work in um, social justice, economic justice issues. And what, your, I mean, what are your main concerns, and who, uh, who do you think is being left out of some of these bigger discussions about climate policy in California? Well, it's a great, it's a great question. There, there has been some work done in California by the legislature, which is a pretty good legislature on equity issues, to address this. So AB 32 is a cap and trade program. Actually, it's three different things. We always think of cap and trade as being AB 32, but AB 32 covers cap and trade, the renewable energy standard, and the low carbon fuel standard. So working together, those are set up to, you know, not only set a cap on carbon, but also change the renewables electricity market and the transportation fuels market. Um, doing those things has costs. Uh, you know, when you are in an economic transition period, the, the communities that are dependent on producing the things you're trying to get away from um, experience impacts. So in California, uh, we are a big oil producing state. I think we're still the third biggest in the United States. Uh, after We're ahead of Alaska now because their production is going down, but we're behind North Dakota, of course, now and Louisiana. Um, that is a big deal in California because we have counties like Kern County down in the south, which are oil producing counties. And so we actually have economic transition or fossil fuel transition issues within the state. And I think that we need to focus on that and pay attention to it. Kern is actually lucky in that they also are home to the world's biggest wind plant and the world's biggest solar plant, which is just about to be built. Um, I know, it's amazing. So so Kern has a lot of other assets and, and that's important to look at and sort of shift toward that. Um, but I also think uh, um, I also think it's important to not just sort of acknowledge that there's transition costs, but actually focus resources toward them. The state has focused about 25% of the AB 32 revenues toward disadvantaged communities, which is a really good start. Um, and that money's being spent through planning and land use and a number of other transit-oriented development and a number of other things. The, the, the big missing piece to me, and one thing we've worked on a lot at Next Generation, though, is what I talked about before, which is really this incremental step 
question. Um, how do you, if you have a vision of a clean energy future, how do you think about not, not 2030, but the next two years of that vision? Um, what are the steps that need to happen to move in that direction? And how can you do those steps in a way that isn't incredibly disruptive um, to communities? So another thing we worked on recently was um, the state's Cash for Clunkers program. Uh, we, a lot of environmental groups in the state have been organized around a vision for electric vehicles, getting a million electric vehicles on the road in California. Um, that's a governor, one of the governor's priorities. It's a great thing. We started to look at the, we started to ask ourselves who in California is not in that market, who's, in a, who's not in a position to buy electric vehicles, and found that there's a number of rural Californians who have commutes over 100 miles and also are, don't have the credit scores or the income to really be part of the electric vehicle market. And so we started focusing on what they were driving and how to get them out of 25-year-old cars um, and into cars that at least are meeting today's emission standards. Um, that will clean up a huge amount of the air in California and make an enormous difference. I think 50% of our smog that's from passenger vehicles is from those cars, those 2 million cars on the road in California that are over 25 years old. So, so that, that to me is one of those places where we're making sure that the policies that we're all talking about actually work for people on the ground in current conditions and in a way that can ultimately transition to this vision of the future that everybody has. Yeah, and I, I think what you're saying is, is so helpful because I think when a lot of people think of California, they think of big cities and really dense urban populations and, you know, kind of like a, a liberal mecca. And what you're alluding to is that California is this really politically and geographically really complex place. Um, so, you know, as you develop policies, it's I, I can see how it's a, a pretty good testing ground, a good model for for the rest of the country in developing other policies. No, that's right. And we also remember, I mean, because so much of it is urban and coastal, a lot of our legislature is urban and coastal. So 40% of our legislature is from Los Angeles County, which is amazing, but makes sense if you think about the population density. That means, though, that a number of the laws that are passed are really geared toward those urban and coastal communities, and there needs to be more attention paid to the rest of the state. So a lot of the narrative that we have around climate change and climate change adaptation and mitigation is can often be negative. Well, we have so much to lose. This is what we have to sacrifice and give up. Um, I was hoping you could speak to the, op the opportunity. What, what is it that we have to gain from from confronting this problem? Well, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in risk, right? Uh, one of the reasons we did the Risky Business Project, which we have, which has been ongoing for the last couple of years, it's a it's a climate risk analysis that's co-chaired by Mike Bloomberg, uh, former New York mayor, of course, uh, Hank Paulson, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and Tom Steyer, who ran a hedge fund for a long time, but is now probably best known to listeners as a climate activist. Um, and I should say, founder of Next Generation. Um, so what we did in that project was to actually take a classic risk approach to the issue of climate change, to ask the question of what are the economic risks that particular sectors, uh, particularly commodity agriculture, energy, and coastal infrastructure, face from increased heat and sea level rise and precipitation changes over the course of the century. So we sort of took a step back and said, how do businesses deal with risks that are have a fair amount of uncertainty, 
but that you need to understand to make good business decisions. How do we do that in other areas? And then we applied that kind of analysis. And the reason we did that, you know, people will also often say when they when when I talk about this, didn't that just depress you? Because of course we find all kinds of risks all over the country. But to me, it actually is a way to capture the opportunity because when you measure the specific risks of something from a business perspective, you actually then can see how to manage those risks. It, it allows you to break it down and operationalize it and turn it into a set of opportunities to mitigate risk, basically. Um, so, so that said, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think if we look, the biggest opportunity, of course, is to avoid a lot of those risks, which is to do some kind of a global deal to limit our carbon emissions. More locally, there are immediate opportunities to become more resilient to some of those risks. And I am definitely not one of those people that thinks that adaptation and resilience is sort of a way out or is ignoring the problem of climate change. The fact is that climate change is a global problem that's felt very locally, and local responses will have to be responses of adaptation at some level. Um, so what can we do to adapt? We can do all kinds of things. We can decide that we don't want to build big centralized power plants with long transmission lines, both, are which, both of which are very heat sensitive and at risk in, under climate change. We can build distributed energy systems with more renewable energy. We can do something that I know Yale is looking at. We can do um, uh, systems that are microgrids for our own campuses. We can look at carbon taxes or carbon fees for our own campuses, whether it's a university campus or a business campus. Look at what Apple just did, um, buying you know over $840 million worth of solar from First Solar to uh, power 130 megawatts to power all of its facilities. That's a big, big purchase. They did a 25-year power purchase agreement for that solar because solar's cheaper right now than anything else and it's less volatile. So we can make choices like that that actually drive the market significantly toward this transformation. And then in, in doing that, I think it creates an opportunity for that global price on carbon, that, that ability to see that a transformation is possible and won't cripple the economy. Yeah. And, and, and another thing I wanted to, to have you elaborate on a little bit is this cap and trade program. Um, I think for, you know, a lot of my classmates here, a cap and trade program sounds in theory really nice. But a, a question that I, that I have is, um, how do people how do people in California feel it? You know, how does it? What impact does it have on consumers? Well, we know it's popular in California. There was just a, a poll done by the Public Policy Institute of California that I think shows up to almost seventy percent of Californians are in favor of the cap and trade program. So we know people generally like it, um, and I think in a state like ours with with real air quality issues, uh, people feel it very personally. I mean, the, the relationship between air quality and carbon in California is, is felt more than I think it is in a lot of places, maybe China. Um, so there, there's a strong positive feeling about addressing these issues. I don't think the debate about, for instance, cap and trade versus a carbon tax is a debate that goes below about, you know, a pretty high level of people at the policy, in the policy arena. We. We actually had a, one of our legislator, legislate, legislators, um, Daryl Steinberg, tried to change our cap-and-trade system to a carbon tax last year. And there was a lot of backlash against that just because people feel like the cap-and-trade system is working. Um, so it's felt by consumers in, in sort of a generally positive way. I think on the ground, people in California know that we have more renewable energy than most people. Um, and they relate that back to the cap-and-trade system. It, 
the the fact that that's the renewable portfolio standard and not the cap and trade system is not meaningful to most people. These things are all of a piece, right? Um, I would say that uh, weighing in on the debate between cap and trade and carbon tax, um, I actually think there's a lot of benefit to having a strict cap. So having the legislature actually put a cap on carbon emissions and then allowing for some kind of maneuvering by the private sector on how to get there. there, at least in California where our legislature has term limits, you know, only four of the people in our current legislature even voted on our cap and trade bill. So it's, we have term limits that mean that we don't have the same legislators at all who worked on this bill in 2006, not that long ago. Um, that means that what you want is a legislature that can pass a cap and then you want an administrative agency to be able to implement that with sort of staff that are consistent and expertise that's consistent. One of the issues with the tax is that it often allows for legislative intervention over and over and over again to change the amount of the tax based on the market. And most people in the political world think that that's a dangerous thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an interesting it's an interesting question. There are some places considering a carbon tax now, Washington State being a big one. And we're, of course, very supportive of there being a regional system that allows for California's cap and trade system to work with British Columbia's carbon tax system and whatever in between, because ultimately those regional systems will push the envelope for a global price. Um, and that's ultimately what we need to get to. So turning a little bit more to talk about this green jobs movement and your involvement in it, aside from <clears throat> the nature of these of these emerging jobs, um, I'm curious what kind of values you are hoping this movement will embody. You know, there's there's increasing attention around employee-owned um, business models. Um, and, you know, I'm just wondering where these different ideas intersect and how the green jobs movement fits in. Well, back when, it wasn't even that long ago, but back when we sort of all coined the term green jobs, um, which was really in the early 2000s, that it became a, a, no, a well-known term in the United States anyway. I'm sure somebody listening to this will trace it back further, but that certainly is my involvement in it. Um, we set up an organization that I was lucky to be involved in called the Apollo Alliance, which was a, a coalition of business, labor, environment, and community organizations focused on creating essentially a clean energy economy. But it was in a clean energy economy that embodied two big principles, clean energy being one of them, but good jobs being the other one. So from the beginning of the Apollo Alliance, we were focused on the job quality, not just the existence of the job. Uh, labor was a big partner in that alliance. And so we always thought about you know, the, the broader question of the sustainability of the job. Can the job, is the job sustainable over the long term and can it sustain the worker and the worker's family? Um, that is a challenging thing to do because it means you're essentially, you're essentially bringing an entire world of economic and workforce development into the energy transformation. But the fact is that if we're going through another basically industrial revolution, we should do it in a way that works for people. Um, and that allows for you know a better situation for America's workers who are in a precarious place right now. Um, people are being asked to work more hours than ever before. People are making less money than ever before. Um, it's an incredibly difficult time to be a worker in any kind of a middle skill job right now. And we looked at the clean energy transformation as an opportunity to sort of 
bring back a lot of those middle skill jobs in, in construction and transportation and manufacturing in particular, and also look at the quality of those jobs. Um, I think that unfortunately the green jobs movement got sidetracked a little bit. Um, from its inception when the job quality was an important part and creating the conditions for good jobs was an important part of the strategy. Uh, you'll look at early Apollo Alliance documents and you'll see it wasn't just about the energy policy. We actually had project labor agreements um, you know, as recommendations in a lot of our, our, our local policies. We actually had workforce, we directed money in the Green Jobs Act toward workforce training. I mean, it was very integrated. Um, it got kind of picked up as a term that just meant how many jobs are created by any particular policy. And when you get into that fight, you're getting into dangerous waters. It's never a good idea to justify energy policy or climate policy entirely on the backs of job creation. Because ultimately, our goal in this economic transformation, our underlying goal is climate change, to deal with climate change. Um, that's the reason we want to change over from a whole fossil fuel-based economy to one that's lower carbon. The, there's a huge opportunity to make that into a job creation, creation and a good job creation kind of economic transformation. It's not the reason to do it, though. <laughs> and I get very nervous when people start fighting over jobs numbers. The, the, um, the most recent example of that is probably the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, I'm just thinking about how people talk about jobs. You'll see over and over and over again, people talk about how there's only 35 permanent jobs on the Keystone Pipeline. The president says it all the time. Advocates say it all the time. It's technically true. The, the analysis absolutely supports that. But that's not why we build big infrastructure projects. There's probably only two jobs on the Hoover Dam uh, that are permanent jobs. But it's not why we do these projects. We do these projects because they create a particular kind of infrastructure. I believe we should not build Keystone because it's an investment in a particular kind of infrastructure that we should be moving away from. Having the argument on a jobs basis I personally think is a bad idea. Bad idea for Keystone, bad idea for a wind farm, bad idea. I think it's a really, really critical distinction to make. And I also think, you know, just reflecting for a minute on on how, you know, the U.S. economy is really locked in, this kind of carbon lock-in. Um, and that's, I mean, just in terms of resources, but in terms of a social, um, social justice yep. kind of scene, there's... You know, you could say a lot about how these two things are really inter-embedded, inter interlinked, that we're kind of locked into a, um, you know, an economic and social uh, system that deprives a lot of people of, you know, basic dignity. Um, so, yeah, we could have a whole, a whole conversation about that. But what you're getting at, I think, is really vital. Well, I think basic dignity, but also just volatility. I mean, the fact is that an economy built on volatility is one that works worst for poor people. So whether that's an economy built on fossil fuels, which are inherently volatile, I mean, not only in terms of price, but they also blow up period periodically. I think we just had another refinery explosion in Torrance, California at an Exxon refinery yesterday. Um, and the, of course, the oil train uh, derailment in West Virginia. So they're volatile in reality, but they're also, the price is up and down constantly. Look at the oil markets right now. North Dakota is laying people off right now after two years or three years of a huge economic boom, being dependent on those kinds of volatile fossil fuels and resources is not a good idea and it hurts poor people first and most. Um, you see that in the global you know, context and also, also in the United States. Parts of the country that have been coal communities for decades in Appalachia, in the Powder River Basin, 
coal is now becoming a less used commodity, those communities are suffering as a result. So I think that, that there's a real value in talking about an economic transformation that's more stable and that is based on a more diverse set of activities. And renewable energy is by definition a more diverse way to do electricity. Um, and as is renewable fuel, as is, as is moving the car fleet over to electricity. Um, so it's, it's more stable, it's more diversified, and ultimately it does provide a lot of opportunities, particularly for you know, what economists call middle skill workers, which basically means not a four-year college degree, um, to some college usually, associate's degree or some kind of technical training, apprenticeship training. Those are the jobs that we saw decline the most during the last recession, particularly hitting men actually um, uh, in the economy. And those are the jobs that tend to be, high, they're high skill, they're difficult to do, they pay a decent wage, and they are available to a huge amount of our workforce that doesn't have that four-year college degree. So I think that there's an opportunity for more stability in the jobs and basing them on a more stable set of resources. And to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's not easy. It is not an easy trans transition. It needs careful thought. It needs to be done intentionally. But there's a lot of opportunity there. So looking forward to, to the next year or two, uh, what are some things that you're most excited about that you're really looking forward to in your work? Well, this is going to be an interesting time for me. So we have, uh, we've actually spun off the Risky Business Project as an independent project. Um, and we did that really to maintain the nonpartisanship of the project and also just give it a, a, a dedicated staff. When we, when we put Risky Business together a couple of years ago, we actually did not expect it to be more than just a report. It was just a way to sort of make an economic case on climate change and move the conversation toward a business framework. We've been incredibly lucky and happy that it's had so much traction. So that project will be spin off, and it's actually going to be based in New York now. Um, and I'll be working with them, but I'm not leading it. And then Next Generation, we're going through a number of changes at Next Generation in terms of sort of what we're working on and how to think about California climate policy. So I'm looking forward to, um, to continuing work on risky business, but also getting back into really my first love, which is, as you can tell, which is economic development and how these kinds of transformations affect individual communities and individual industries. I think the best way to do the kind of work we've been talking about in terms of green jobs and good jobs and making that economic transformation work is at a pretty micro level. I think you have to do it with a, a deep understanding of the particular sector you're talking about and the particular community you're talking about and where are their assets and what are their opportunities and what are their challenges. So I'm excited to get back into that. I'm doing some work um, on that in a couple different parts of the US and potentially in China. So that's exciting for me to kind of look ahead and think, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's take a minute again while oil prices are where they are, while we've got a slightly better political environment for some of these transformations, let's take a look at how that works on the ground. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Kate. Absolutely. It's been fun.